0: There, I think I'm on. All right, good. Good morning. The title of today's message, if you haven't seen it already from your bulletin, is The Exclusivity of Christ. Well, to put it more simply, is Jesus the only way to heaven? That's a question many people have asked, not just Corbin and Kieran. Thank you. I have a friend at work who was telling me uh, about her mother and her newfound religious faith. She said that she had gotten involved with a group called the Jehovah's Witnesses. And uh, my first thought was, hmm. And she knew they had a questionable reputation, but she said it was a good thing. She said she was very pleased. Because of her involvement with the Jehovah's Witnesses, her mother had found peace. She found something that worked for her, something that gave her peace and purpose and fulfillment and direction in life. And my friend who was atheist said, that's all I care about. Mom is happy. We're good. Is that really the right perspective? I mean, is it just finding something that works for us? That's subjective truth. That's what that is. It's your truth. It's my truth. It works for you. What works for me. There's no real objective, right and wrong, accurate, false. You know, the answer to that question is serious. It has tremendous implications for life. Is there real right and wrong, truth and error? Right now, as Corbin and Karen pointed out, there are billions of people in the world and most of them adhere to some kind of religious system. Two billion of the people in the world call themselves Christians, at least in name. They say they're followers of Jesus. A billion and a half are Muslims, the faith of Islam following Muhammad and the teachings of the Quran. About one billion, mainly located in India, are Hindus following Lord Krishna and his teachings. 400 million are Buddhists following Buddha, mainly located in China. And then there's another billion or so that are atheists or agnostics who put their faith in nothing. And I chose those words carefully. Are they all equally valid? Are any of them right? Are some more right than others? Is only one right? In our passage today from John 14, I encourage you to turn there if you haven't already, Jesus will provide his answer to that question. And I want us to explore his answer. You have to remember John 14 happens during the final week of Jesus's life. It's on Thursday night. He had washed his disciples' feet. They celebrated the Passover meal together. Later that night, he'd be betrayed by Judas and arrested. He'd have a trial before Pilate. And the next day he would die. He would be killed. He'd be crucified on Good Friday. So our passage today comes on the final night of his life before he's killed. John 14. So let's read from the text. We'll just do verses 1 through 6. It would take a little too long to go through 1 through 9. So let's do 1 through 6 today. Jump in with me let's start in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, at the end of the preceding chapter 13, let me give you a little context. Jesus had just told the disciples some disturbing news. He had said only, He said, one of you is going to betray me. That was in verse 21. He didn't say who, so they all wondered if he was talking about them. Then he said, I'm only going to be with you a little while longer. You have to remember, he'd been with him for three years. And he said, where I'm going, you can't come. You can't follow me if you want to. And then lastly, your leader, Peter, is going to deny me three times this very night. That's what Jesus had just told them. So understandably, they were upset. They'd been with him three years. They had no idea this was coming. So to calm their hearts, he says, trust, trust in God, believe in God and believe in me. Although you don't understand what I'm talking about, you can trust the heart of God. You can trust my heart. Now, did you notice the way he stated that? He's linking himself to God. It's subtle, but it's there in the text. Believe in God, believe also in me. That's a bold assertion, but he is only just beginning his claims in this passage. Read on in verse 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? When Jesus says, my father's house, he's used that phrase many times. They've heard this for three years. He calls God his father all the time. My father's house. He's talking of heaven. They should have known that. But his imminent departure, which he just warned them about, he says it's a good thing. It's a good thing. I'm going to heaven to prepare a place for you. And notice he says there's many rooms, which means there won't be a housing crisis in heaven when we get there for believers in Jesus. And I know the old King James said mansions, which is fun to think of. But I'm happy with just a room. (laughs) Verse 3, he goes on. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, I love the logical flow of thought here. Did you see it? If Jesus is leaving earth in order to prepare a home for them in heaven, then that means he must return one day to take them there. And when he takes them there, he said he will be with them and the implication is forever. This is good news for any believer in Jesus Christ. We don't need to assume he's only talking to the disciples. He said many rooms, which means he's preparing for you and for me, those of us who call on Jesus as Lord and Savior. Verse 4, And you know, you know the way to where I am going. Now, that may seem like a strange statement, Because how could anyone know the way, the route, the path, the road to heaven? If we're thinking in literal terms, I would have no idea how to get there. And in fact, that's how the disciples take what he says. But what he means when he says, you know the way, all he means is this, you know me. That's what he means. But that doesn't become clear until verse 6. So in the meantime, Thomas responds in verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going, How can we know the way? Now, you know Thomas. He has a bad reputation, right? Doubting Thomas. Unless I see his hands and feet, I won't believe, right? Remember that? Thomas has a couple other occasions in the Gospels where he says things that are very interesting. Right here, he comes across as extremely pragmatic. He's basically saying, if we don't know where you're going, how are we supposed to know how to get there? Very pragmatic man. He also, if you remember, when Jesus had a friend named Lazarus who was dying, Jesus said, let's go back to Bethany, which is really close to Jerusalem, where the Jews are that wanted to kill him. And the disciples say, don't go back there. Remember the last time you were there, they tried to kill you. And Jesus says, At this, the early Jews who had Jesus come expected a Messiah to set up his kingdom, reign, and rule on the earth. That's what they're expecting. They're not expecting a Messiah who would die, rise from the dead, ascend to heaven, and wait at least 2,000 years before he comes back. Yeah, you and I get that because we live after those 2,000 years. They didn't get that. Let's give them a break. So, Thomas asks a very practical question. And Jesus says, let me make it clear what I'm saying. When I say you know the way, let me make it clear. Verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Kieran quoted that this morning. Jesus said, you want to know the way? You're looking at it. I'm the way. You want to know where I'm going? To the Father in heaven. You want to know how to get to the Father? Through me alone. The claims of Jesus in this verse, let's be honest, they're mind-boggling. And I want us to look at each one of these. Let's take a look at each one of these claims of Jesus. The way, the truth, and the life. First of all, the way. Not I am a way. Not I am one way. Not I'm a pointer to the way. Not I know the way, but I am the way. Words matter. Jesus is claiming that access to God is not through religion, not through a system, not through any particular act of man. It is through a person. And that person, he says, is me. That's one reason, by the way, the Christians were called followers of the way. Do you remember that? Five times in the book of Acts, Christians are called followers of the way. The way being Jesus. Followers of the way. That's what early Christians were called. And they were also called Christians, little Christs, because they didn't follow a system. They followed a person, Jesus. When Jesus claims to be the way to God, you have to remember from a Jewish mindset how profound this is. The presence of God for 1,500 years was located in the holiest of holies, the most holy place in the temple or the tabernacle, where no one could see it, surrounded by walls, and in one place a thick curtain, probably three inches thick. And the only person who could ever enter into that presence of God, which was located there, was the high priest, and he could only do that once a year after going through all sorts of cleansing rituals and sacrifices. It was the only time he was allowed in. So when Jesus was crucified, do you remember what happened? Somehow, miraculously, that temple, that curtain that separated the presence of God from the people was torn from top to bottom, just torn from top to bottom, making direct visible the presence of God, directly visible to the people. It was a symbolic statement by God, That through the death of Jesus, access to God's presence was now available to all. To all. And the book of Hebrews says our access to God is literally through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10. Through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. It's like he's the new curtain for us. You want to go to the presence of God? You don't have a curtain. You go through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. That's what it's saying. That's why 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God. And there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's why he's the way. But he doesn't just stop there. What else does he claim? I'm the truth. Not I know the truth. Not i found the truth. Not I've located the truth. I teach the truth. I'm aware of the truth. I'm filled with truth. No. I define truth. I am truth. Truth is measured by me. How could he make such an astounding claim. Because according to Scripture, he's God's self-disclosure to man. Amen, little one. He is God with us. Emmanuel, which is what that means. He is the Word made flesh, John 14. Incarnation, we talk of that word, it means God in the flesh. Carne, right? Latin, Spanish, carne, those of you who know, meat. God in flesh. That's what the incarnation. that's what Christmas is. It's God coming in the flesh. So that's why John in chapter 117 would say, For the law was given through Moses, the Old Testament law. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He told Pilate at his trial that night, For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice, my voice. Jesus is the way. Because he is the truth. But he's not even done yet. And I'm the life. Not I have life. Not i found life. Not even I give life. I am the life. He's the way to God because he's the source of life. John 1, 4. In him was life. One of the reasons that we call God self-existent and we have derived existence is because we don't create life within ourselves. Life is given to us. It came to you at conception. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. You don't give life to yourself. God is the author of life. And so in John 5, 26, it says, For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself, the source of life within God. These are staggering claims. That's why he's the only way to God, because he has the power to give life. John 5:21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. So, three claims, the way, the truth, and the life. On the basis of these three claims, Jesus argued that no one had access to God the Father except through him. This is, let's be clear, this is an argument for total exclusivity. He is saying there is simply no other way to God. There's no other religion. There's no other path. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. He is saying I am the only way. It's categorically him or nothing according to Jesus. Those are his claims. Now, the fact is in the gospel of John, he made 7 of these claims. Not just one, 7. We can put these up. He said I am the way the truth and life here in John 14:6. We got that. He also said I am the bread of life in John 6:35. The bread of life, the sustenance for what you need to just exist. I am the light of the world, John 8, 12. I am the gate, or the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the true vine. These are massive, staggering claims. No one else in history has ever spoken like this. We get weirdos every now and then who claim to be Jesus. But Jesus claimed to be these things. So, if this is true, If he's right, because he's either crazy or right, if he's right, then all of creation, all of history, all of time and space, everything that exists that we know of, hinges on the person of Jesus Christ. Everything. So we have to ask this morning, is there any evidence to back up what he's claiming? You have to ask this. I'm going to give you four things. If you're a note taker, please write these down. There's lots of evidences. I'm going to give you four this morning. For how Jesus could make claims like this to be the way, the truth, and life. The first is the birth of Jesus. The birth of Jesus. In Matthew 1, we're told that Jesus was born to Mary who was a virgin, which means he did not have a human father. He was conceived supernaturally through the power of the Holy Spirit. He came from God. Even Islam, Muslims, in the Quran, acknowledge that Jesus had a virgin birth. Did you know that? Yep, it's in the Quran. However, neither Muhammad or Krishna or Buddha claimed to have a supernatural birth. What are the implications of being virgin-born? Have you ever thought about it? We spit it out. We say, yeah, born of a virgin, it's Christmas. Let me give you some implications of what it means to be virgin-born. It means, first of all, he was human, and that's really important. He's human by virtue of being born of Mary. His humanity is a critical part of his work as Savior. Hebrews 2 says that he took on flesh and blood so he could be one of us. And as a representative of the human race, he could live a perfect life in obedience to God's law, die in our place as a representative, and provide forgiveness for us. He could not have done that were he not human. So let's not downplay the fact that he's human. But the virgin birth also means he wasn't merely or only human. He was born of Mary, but he was not born of Joseph. Colossians 1.19 says he is fully God, Fully divine. We use a word called divinity. It just means godness. God. Divinity means God. The fact that he was divine is also critical. And he showed that on earth. His power over disease, his power over evil spirits, nature, water to wine, multiplying bread, calming the seas, raising the dead. He showed his divinity that he was God. So the sacrifice that he made on the cross, think about this, was as a perfect representative of mankind who kept the law of God. But it was also as God himself, so it was infinitely valuable. So you have a sacrifice by God to God on behalf of sinful man. That's incredible. That's the cross. Well, the virgin birth isn't just done there. It also means he didn't come into existence when he was born. We know that from John 1. In the beginning was the word. And He goes on to say he was always there. So his earthly beginning was when he was born. But that's just when he took on flesh. His entrance into the world was simply the point at which he became human, took on a human body to be like us. So he had existed for all eternity past, wrap your mind around that one, as God. And then the virgin birth also means he didn't have a sin nature. Ever since Adam sinned, all of us have a propensity to sin. John uh, Romans 5.12 We inherit a disposition that causes us to sin, that leads us to sin, that pulls us to sin. You don't think that's true? Ask any parent of a three- or four-year-old. We all have it, except Jesus. Hebrews 4.15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet, what's it say? Without sin. That's why his sacrifice for you and me works. He's one of us, but he's perfect. Some of you will remember Larry King was a popular talk show host, broadcaster, retired in 2010. Probably any of you over 20 would remember Larry King. He retired in 2010, interviewed many, many famous people. He was once asked if he could interview anyone from across all of history, who would it be? You know who he said, right? Jesus Christ. But here's what's interesting. He said, I would ask just one question. Just one. The question is, are you indeed virgin-born. Larry King said the answer to that question would define history for me. Larry King is not a believer, but he understands the ramifications of the claim to be virgin-born. So I give you as one evidence, the birth of Jesus. No other claim that. Number two, the life of Jesus. The life of Jesus. In the Quran, Muhammad was told to ask for forgiveness. That's right. Muhammad the prophet was told to ask for forgiveness, and he also embarrassingly had 11 wives. Not the greatest model to follow. Krishna, Lord Krishna, had sexual flings with some milkmaids. It's written down in their history. It's a bit embarrassing for their scholars to admit. Buddha left his wife and son in search of answers. He is said to have endured many rebirths, because they believe in reincarnation, as he searched for final enlightenment. Until he finally reached there after many, 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 many tries. Now, I want you to contrast that with what they said about Jesus at his trial. Let's read from Mark 14. We'll put this up on the screen. Now, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found what? None. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, their testimony did not agree. That's it? The best they can come up with is he said he'd knock down a building? You have to remember, he's on trial without a lawyer from people who want to kill him and they are searching for any evidence against him morally, against his character, against, what do they come up with? Nothing. Nothing. Apparently, when you do no wrong, you leave very little for people to talk about. The same cannot be true of Mohammed, Krishna, Buddha, or anyone else. The birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus. Three, the resurrection of Jesus. Just consider for a moment, the tomb was cut in stone. There's no back door. There's no back door. The front is blocked by a massive boulder on an incline, on a hill, which required several men with a lot of noise to move out of the way. Also consider the Romans placed an armed guard at the tomb because they had heard that he prophesied he would rise from the dead, and they didn't want this to be an issue with anyone robbing the grave. So Pilate, the Roman in charge, said, Put a guard there. In fact, he said, make it as secure as you can. This is Pilate in charge of everything. So we think there were at least 16 armed Roman guards there, maybe more, who on pain of death would have to defend to make sure no one robbed that grave. That's their job. And lastly, they put a seal, a Roman seal over the stone, which indicated it was high treason for anyone to disturb that grave. I'm not going near it. And yet, some people will claim that the little wimpy disciples, 11 who were left, who had all fled the night that he, the the night before, the night that he was arrested, they'd all fled. Their leader had denied him quaking before a servant girl three times. And yet these 11 men somehow overpowered an armed Roman guard on pain of death to rob the body. You think that happened? That's a stretch. That's faith. No, that didn't happen. Only John, of all the original disciples, disciples died a normal death. He was exiled and died. The other 11, you know what happened to them? They were martyred for their faith, saying, Jesus has risen and we've seen him. You don't make that stuff up when it's on pain of death. You say, I made it up. I, I, I'm sorry, I just, no, no, it's not true. All of them went to their grave, tortured, because they said, no, we've seen him. We've seen him alive. So I give you the resurrection of Jesus, the birth of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. And lastly, the scriptures of Jesus. Did you know that all of the world's religions make a distinction between the teacher and the message? The teacher points to the message, doesn't always follow it, doesn't always live it rightly, but says follow the message, follow the message. It's the way you need to go. You know what Jesus does? He says the message is me. I am the message. The message points to me. He said in Luke 24 to his disciples, the two on the road to Emmaus, what did he say to them? These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The Jews, when they were talking about the Old Testament, they said those three things. They called them the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That was all their Old Testament. Jesus says, your entire Old Testament is about one thing, and let me show you how that's true. I'm just going to rattle some verses at you, and there's a whole lot more. Genesis 3.15, the third chapter of the Bible. After Adam and Eve sin, he gives a promise of a redeemer who will come from the biological line of Eve, who will redeem them from the sin that they have caused. Who's that? Jesus. Exodus 12, second book of the Bible. They took an unblemished, perfect Passover lamb, and they sacrificed it, took its blood, put it over the doorframe so that the destroyer of death would not come to their home, and they were spared, pointing to? Jesus. Leviticus 16, on the Day of Atonement, their highest holy day of the year, they took a scapegoat. They put their hands on the scapegoat. They confessed all their sins, put it on this goat, sent this goat away from the camp to take their sins away from them. Pointing to Jesus. Second Samuel 7, God made a promise to David that he would have an heir from his throne who would reign forever. Pointing to Jesus. Zechariah 9, 9, that that king would come humble riding on a donkey. Jesus. Isaiah 53, that he would bear our sin, that he would be innocent, but he would take our punishment and make us righteous. Jesus. Psalm 22, that his hands and his feet would be pierced, that his garments would be divided. Jesus. And Psalm 1610, that his body would not suffer decay because he would rise again. Jesus. All of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And now all the New Testament points, points to Jesus. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are four Gospels. They're the Gospels of what? Of the good news of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts. The founding of the church of Jesus Christ. All the letters and epistles. Paul, John, Peter, James. Written to the churches of Jesus Christ to help them follow Jesus Christ. And the last book of your Bible. You know it as Revelation. Do you know what the full title is? The Revelation of Jesus Christ. When he returns from heaven. Everything in scripture Points to Jesus Christ. Everything. There is no difference between the Master and the message. He is the message. So I give you the birth, the life, the resurrection, and the scriptures of Jesus. Just four evidences. Unique in all of history. I close with a true account. The Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, you've heard of Napoleon, was exiled to the island of St. Helena in 1815 after his defeat at Waterloo. And he would eventually die about six years later on this little rock, this little island. While there, he spoke with a count. And Ravi Zacharias provides this information. It's quoted from 1866. Napoleon asked the count, can you tell me who Jesus Christ was? The count declined to respond. Napoleon countered, well, then I will tell you. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I, myself, have founded great empires, And upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire on love. And to this day, millions will die for him. I think I understand something of human nature. And I tell you, all these were men and I am a man. None else is like him. Let me find my place. I have inspired multitudes with such enthusiastic devotion that they would have died for me. But to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence. I love his vanity. With the electric influence of my looks, my word, my voice. Got to love Napoleon. Christ alone has succeeded in so raising the mind of man toward the unseen that it becomes insensible to the barriers of time and space. Across a chasm of 1,800 years, we would add 2,000 now, 1,800 years, Jesus Christ makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks for that which a philosopher may often ask in vain of the hand of his friends or the father of his children or a bride of her spouse or a man of his brother. He asks for the human heart and he will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally, and forthwith, immediately, his demand is granted. Wonderful. In defiance of time and space, the soul of man with all its powers and faculties becomes an annexation to the empire of Christ. All who sincerely believe in him experience that remarkable supernatural love toward him. This phenomenon is unaccountable. It is altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers time the great destroyer is powerless to extinguish this sacred flame this the time can neither exhaust its strength nor put a limit to its range this is it which strikes me most i have often thought of it this it is which proves to me quite convincingly the divinity of jesus christ napoleon bonaparte is jesus the only way to heaven. Yes. And according to scripture, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God Almighty. Would you pray?